Today's show is sponsored by Stamps.com. Get a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale when you go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter code LASTS. Today's show is also sponsored by Honey. Honey is a free browser extension that automatically finds the best promo codes when you shop online. If you're buying gifts this holiday season, then you need Honey. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com real. Hey guys, welcome to the Real Life Podcast, where we talk about exactly that every single week. Real life, which means some episodes might be about a fight we just had, some episodes might be about potty training since we have two toddlers, and some might be about eschatological realism because I love thinking and talking about deep theological things. And maybe we'll talk about all three of those in one episode. But we hope the show feels like hanging out in our living room with us, drinking a cup of coffee as we discuss faith and family and culture and Jesus. Me and my lovely wife, Alyssa, are your hosts, and don't hesitate to hit us up or reach out on social media to say hi or comment on this week's episode. Enjoy. What's up, guys? Jeff here. Okay, I don't know if you listened last week, but if you haven't, this is kind of a two-part series, so you need to go listen back to last week. Also, thank you guys for who has sent me DMs about seeing me in Target on that huge TV wall. It's crazy. Um, and book is still on target selling like hotcakes. So if you got it there, tweet me, DM me. I love you guys. It's available anywhere. Books are sold. The audiobooks out there as well. I put a bunch of bonuses and nuggets in the audiobook. So people are loving that. You guys are the best. It's been so fun. Okay. Two part series though. So if you didn't listen to last week's, you should, cause, uh, this is a kind of part two to a series and a talk I did this last month on sexuality and marriage and vision for relationships and God's design in the scriptures. But you kind of need part one. Cause I build on that a couple times. So go back and listen to that and then hump hop in here. Um, but I hope you guys enjoy. Love you guys. Awesome. What's up, guys? You guys doing good? Doing good? Um, If you have your Bibles, Genesis 1 again. That's one of my favorite books. If you can't tell, I'm going in it for two days. So let's do it. I'm excited. Um, Okay, so today I want to try to lean into uh, God's vision for sex and sexuality and what that means to be a 21st century follower of Jesus, um, a follower of the way in our culture, certainly with a vision that's competing against our culture, right? Uh, It's clear if you spend two minutes being a human in our world, in our culture, that our culture has a very different view of sex and sexuality than we find in the scriptures. But I think it's a very interesting integral conversation because I think there's a lot of things that collide there. And our culture's view can be summed up in a couple different things, but I think it's clear that we see from the commodification of everything and consumerism and globalism and all these different things that that of course has come to sex and things like pornography and all these different things where it's completely commodified, transactional, and at some level it's a product you can buy, give, take, and sell. But at its truest form in our culture, sex, we are told, is nothing more than about our own personal fulfillment. It's about us and what we want and what we desire and feeding those desires in an unhindered way because that is almost anti-cultural gospel to say there might be limits or you might need to be hindered at some level to actually find freedom. So culture says that is the ethos, that is the center. We almost go so far to say, I would say the message almost now, is it is not just about your personal fulfillment and desire, but now you are your sexuality. You are sex at some level. What you give and receive in that context in an unhindered, uninhibited way is who you are. It's your identity is what our culture is almost saying. I would say is saying very loudly. But it's clear, what do we see in Jesus? Does Jesus show that? Or does Jesus show a competing narrative? What I love about Jesus is who was the most flourishing, full, viable, loving human presence in the history of the universe? Who? I just gave you the answer. Jesus. 
Did he also die a single, lonely virgin as one? Yes. So obviously those ideas are not mutually exclusive. Are you tracking with me? That you can actually live according to Jesus. We have an example. We have the prototype in God himself become man as the fully human one who shows us very clearly that you do not need sex to survive or to live or to be fully human. Now, did Jesus have a sexuality? Yes. That's a different thing that we're going to talk about in a second. But you do not need sex in the same way that you need food to survive. So we have to start there, by the way, that Jesus proves to us already by his own life, he is a subversive, resistant witness to our culture that you can live a full and flourishing and happy and filling existence more than any of us, actually. He was the most fully human one without sex, without meeting those desires, without indulging in those desires. So we see that in Jesus. So what I want to talk about today is a couple of what I think the scripture does say that competes with the narrative we see in culture. Now, I just want to read a couple verses and then um, we'll get going. So I'm just going to jump around here. But Genesis 1.1 says this. You guys know this one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Down to verse 31, then says this. And then God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Then you go to verse 24, and therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. In verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So I summarize and jump around in those verses to paint a quick picture of very first page of scripture. God created the heavens and the earth. That's a Jewish idiom, by the way, for everything. God created it all. Do you realize the place you are living is God's domain? He created it. It was his idea, not the place where you float up in the heavens and the sky when you die with babies and harps and wings, which by the way, if you ever saw babies and wings and harps, don't you think you would actually run, not say, I want to live there forever? Right? This place. Now, is there a curse and is shalom broken and all, is there fallenness here? Of course. Amen. But everything, heaven and earth, art, beauty, food, sex, relationships, everything out in this earth is good and God's from his created order. Now, from the curse, though, all these things have been tainted, but none of them are inherently evil. Are you tracking with me? It's all God's idea. It's all God's design. It is his. And he looks at it at the end of the chapter when he does create everything and says, it was very good. It was good. Again, sex is good. Art is good. Culture is good. Music is good. Relationships are good. Education is good. Being a human is good. Do you believe that? We have to start there. That you actually see in scripture a God who says, no, no, this is my design. I want you to enjoy. I want you to eat. I want you to delight in my good gifts in their context. Some of us, because so many things maybe by our own behaviors or something that's been done against us or whatever, we then get this tainted belief that that thing is inherently in and of itself wrong. God says, no, no, it's good. He's a God of feasting and celebrating, is he not? I always love thinking like, when I grew up in kind of a church context, I basically was hearing the message that God is just a big fat buzzkill and kind of doesn't like you and anything that's enjoyable must be sin. That's almost the barometer of if it's sin, if you enjoy it. it no one else grew in that context? Okay, uh, but that's the message I heard, right? Rather than saying, no, no, God is a God of delight who wants to show us the proper way to enjoy something, just like any gift, it has a context or it doesn't. Just like fire, by the way, can bring heat and warmth in a fire pit or make good s'mores. S'mores, amen, yes, Lord. Um, 
But what can a fire also do? It can burn your house down. Does that not sound like sex? Great to bring warmth and heat and beauty and goodness, but it can also burn your house down. So sex inherently is not wrong, but like fire, God is showing us it has a context and it has a place. So that's the first point I wanted to start with that I think is a competing narrative, that sex itself is not dirty, shameful, wrong, gross. It is good. So then we have to unpack, okay, well, what is God's vision of it? Where does he place it in the fire pit? And we see in Genesis, like I read at the end, and the two shall become, what? One flesh. That word one flesh in Hebrew is ikad, literally means to fuse together at the deepest parts of your being. So sex is actually this beautiful image of fusing together at all levels, this narrative of male plus female in a covenantal relationship. And it is good and it is beautiful and it's full of delight and goodness. What's up, guys? I want to take a quick break to talk about one of this week's sponsors, and that is Stamps.com. You know I love them because I have been using Stamps.com for like seven years before they even sponsored this show. If you don't know what Stamps.com is, they basically just hook you guys up with a way to not have to go to the post office but get a lot of the same benefits, but even better. You don't need to interrupt your workday to fight traffic, to go to the post office during holidays, whether you're a small business or not. Anything you can do at the post office, you can do at Stamps.com. They bring all the services of the postal service right to your computer. So you basically, from your computer, can print U.S. postage for any letter, package, mail, anywhere you want to send, um, and then you just drop it in the mailbox. It's super awesome and convenient, and I seriously love it, and you get a bunch of savings from them as well. So uh, they want to hook you guys up, okay? So go to stamps.com. There's no risk, and you can use the code LAST to get a special offer, and what that includes is a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale, no long-term commitments or contracts. So again, stamps.com, Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in LASTS, L-A-S-T-S, at stamps.com, enter LASTS. And this is the one I want to go to next. Sex, then, tells a story. The second thing is that sex is not about personal fulfillment. Sex actually tells a story. I know it's a weird way to put it, but that's what we just saw, that God, and we see even later in the scriptures in Ephesians and other places, that this male plus female relationship at some level, is trying to tell a drama of sorts. It's trying to, like, you notice, by the way, that everything in Genesis is complementary. Everything. You got day and night. You got the plants and the animals. You got all these different complementary things. So male plus female is actually just kind of the final act of the complementary play. The otherness and the togetherness. The otherness and the togetherness. And so male plus female are then fused together. And what we see in Ephesians is that God then says, yes, and this is a shadow and a picture and a beautiful drama that's actually telling about me and the church, me and the, my people. Otherness, but togetherness and oneness. The two will become one flesh. So the question is, is your sexuality pointing towards that story? Whether you're engaging in sex or not, are you living in a way under the lordship of Jesus that is actually pointing towards that story or is it telling a really crappy bad story? Because a lot of us were telling a lot different story. Again, because of pornography, because of just recreational sex outside of the covenants of marriage, all these different things. We're not telling that story. We're saying sex is just kind of like a commodified good. Sex is something that's just about personal fulfillment, again. Sex is just about what I want, what I feel, what I like, what I desire. But the scripture says, no, 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 that's not the true story. The true story is this is actually about a giving, not a taking. This is actually about covenant, not contract. This is actually about full nakedness at some level, metaphorically, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and everything. And you see that other person, you say, and two will become one. That's true 
intimacy? Are you living in that story? Another way to think about it, I know it's kind of weird, but the story that sex is telling is a story, if you're living in God's design of it, is according to his design in Genesis, it should bring order. Like we talked about yesterday, the image bearingness of what it means to actually be human, right? Love in its essence and in principle, because of course we have things like infertility. Of course we have things like, you know, it's very difficult for people to get pregnant. So of course it's not everyone. But in principle, sex physically does what? It creates It literally creates little images, little icons. They're called children, right? It literally, like, like because this is literally the picture of sex, you guys, is that it comes together in such an intimate way, this God's design, comes together in such a beautiful and amazing and heavenly way that the spillover becomes icons and images of that love. You tracking with me? Which, by the way, that's how we were created. Did you know that? The Trinity, right, in eternal, forever sacrificial love, submitting to one another, loving one another, in covenant relationship with one another, another, their cup got so full, what happened? It spilled over and it's called humans. We got created, like love does that in its essence. Love in its essence populates, creates, multiplies, and spreads images and icons. So many of us, our vision of sex is the opposite. What's the opposite of order? What's the opposite? Chaos right? Our sex, our vision of it, pornography, whatever you want to call it, it's chaotic. It does not spread icons of Im- and images of love physically, actually in a covenant of marriage or metaphorically. It spreads icons and images of chaos. We're going backwards at some level. Pornography is literally this peak picture of chaotic fulfillment and desire. Chaos, where it's untamed. That's what it means to bring order, by the way, is to tame something, to reign and rule over it. But we, in our curse, in our sinful state, are creatures at some level of chaos. So we're always going to unwind what God is trying to intertwine, right? Which, by the way, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. Do you know Satan? I even just, like, I just gave it away right there. I like to say, do you know the Satan actually doesn't have a name in the scripture? He is a nameless creature. Every single name that we think of Satan, by the way, is actually just an adjective or a descriptor of him. The accuser, that's what Satan means right? Lucifer was actually a Latin translation from the Vulgate that I think means basically falling from the stars from that Isaiah passage. He has no name in scripture. And I actually love that. Every single name we think he has in scripture is just a descriptor. Because why? Why? What do names represent? To me, in Genesis, they represent order. When something is brought into fruition and into creation and born out of that overflow of the Trinity, it gets a name. It's orderly. It's beautiful. And who is the epitome of chaos? Who is the creature of chaos? The Satan, the accuser, the liar, the evil one. And so he, I love, I feel like that's God's total just like, you know, like slight. You don't get a name. You don't get a name. But so many of us, our behaviors, how we view our sexuality, how we're indulging them in unhindered, unorderly ways is actually taking us backwards into chaos not forward into order and beauty and the new city in Jerusalem that we're actually building towards in God's kingdom. And so you have to ask yourself, which direction, which direction or trajectory is your sexuality pointing towards order or towards chaos? Because you really only have two options. Another one that I want to talk about is sex, especially in our culture, what I kind of alluded to in the beginning, is an opportunity to show off the lordship of Jesus and to show our full humanness. What do I mean by that? Again, 
There's something about order where you can actually have the most freedom. There's something about limits where you can actually have the most freedom. You ever thought about that? Our culture's view of freedom is just like a cheap, crappy, enlightenment version of freedom. Do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, right? Now, try jumping out of an airplane like that, by the way. What do you actually need to jump out of an airplane and parachute? What do you need? A parachute or limits. You need to be locked in. You need to actually be contained at some level. And when you are, then can you enjoy that amazing freedom of jumping out of a plane? Yes. And there's something about that where we have to understand that our desires, our sexual desires, good or bad, because we have both, by the way, right? And sexuality in and of itself is great and a blessing and good, but we have to understand they have to be submitted to the limits of Jesus's lordship. He is king over my sexuality, gay or straight, by the way. He's king. He decides where this points. He decides where this goes. He decides what direction I will put these desires in. And here's why. Because when you do that, it's not just a random arbitrary Toraic law, but it's actually how you find genuine humanness. Because like I said yesterday, we're all images. And in in the essence of an image, you will reflect something. That's what it means to be an image bearer. You will take on the image of something, your work, your sport, your sexuality, whatever it is, you will take on an image if it's not the lordship of Jesus. Are you tracking with me? That under the lordship of Jesus, then you begin to take on his image and live into your full genuine humanness. What's up, guys? Want to take another break? Tell you about one of this week's sponsors, and that is Honey. I love Honey. It's a super awesome browser plugin that I use on Chrome. And holidays are coming up, or holidays are here, so maybe you're thinking about gift giving, and this allows you to save tons of money in the most convenient way possible. It's a free browser extension that automatically basically finds the best promo codes when you're shopping online. So you get all the best deals on over 20,000 sites. I use it on when I go to Amazon, all these different sites, Target, Best Buy. It's really, really cool. I even specifically remember a huge deal I got on I think some Nest cameras on Amazon where I just clicked the button, it looked up all the promo codes and things, and then boom, $50 saved it that quick. So really, really awesome. And uh, it's kind of like a why not, a no brainer. So they found over 10 million members over a billion dollars in savings, which is super awesome. And it supports over 20,000 stores online and they have over 100,000 five-star reviews. So they wanna hook you guys up. If you're buying holiday gifts this season, then you need honey. And if you're not, well, then you probably know someone who is and who needs it as well. So they wanna hook you guys up. It's free to use and you can install it in just two clicks. So go to joinhoney.com slash real. Again, that's joinhoney.com slash real. Here's a weird way to think about it, but this helps me. Remember yesterday when I talked about how we don't find statues uh, of Caesar in Rome, we find them out in the outer colonies? Okay, now, those outer colonies, right? Maybe that, let's say 2,000 miles away from Rome, they have a statue of Caesar, okay? And that, that statue, I would hope, when it first gets planted or whatever, right, would be kind of like gorgeous and shiny and it maybe be marble or stone or whatever. Now, I would also guess there's probably someone there whose job is to kind of maintain it. Does that make sense? To kind of make sure that it doesn't just like crumble and go to shreds. Now, why would they do that? Because that is a colony under the reign and rule of Rome and because of Caesar's lordship, now that image will be maintained, now, when Rome gets taken over, or like now, even 2,000 years ago, when they go to, you know, do the archaeology of finding these statues, is that thing shiny and bright and amazing? What is it? It's crumbling. It's decayed. It's maybe half at some level of like what it once was. Does that not sound like a really interesting but cool picture to think about sin? Right? 
and genuine humanness. To follow Jesus means you're under the lordship of Jesus, which means he then will, you will reflect him, which will constantly be renewing your genuine humanness. The minute you step out of that and go under the lordship of something else, sex, job, alcohol, effort, performance, whatever you wanna call it, you begin to crumble. You literally begin to crumble. One of my favorite books is Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis, which of course at some level is fiction, but he talks about hell being this place of almost hollowy, animalistic, ghostly creatures. Why? Because it's basically hell at some level is a place where you say, I don't want the image on me anymore because that's what makes me human and an image bearer of God. You say, I don't want that anymore. And hell's basically God saying, okay, I'm going to take the image off then. What are you without the image of God? Hell is an insane picture to think about if you think about it through that lens. You're an animalistic I don't even know, creature of sorts that deteriorates because the image of God is actually what maintains your humanness. Have you ever thought about sexuality through that lens? So many of us, we step back into those and it's chaos. And if you keep going to chaos, you keep splitting and splintering apart. That's the nature of chaos. And I love that book, by the way, too, because heaven is the opposite. Heaven in the great divorce is so dense and full and rich and everyone's almost like giants at some level because they're so fully realized they're so embodied in their humanness. The people from hell take like a bus to heaven and they, they can't even literally walk on the blades of grass because the blades of grass are so much more real than them. Because the blades of grass in heaven in a fully realized way are almost at some level, weird way to say, more human than even the creatures who are no longer in hell. It's a weird way to think about it, but I think it's really important specifically in the lane of sexuality that to submit your sexuality and the engagement of actual sex behavior, masturbation, pornography, sex in the confines of marriage, all these different behaviors and things, good or bad, and submitting that to the lordship of Jesus, you maintain your humanness and actually are renewing your humanness more into the image of Jesus. So it even goes past that metaphor of the statues, by the way, because that's just a maintaining. What we see in scripture is you actually become more and more and more and more and more and more human, more and more and more and more like Jesus, living into his context his design. So do you believe that your sexuality is an opportunity to live in that? And there's no, by the way, there's no more crazy, scandalous, subversive witness than we can have as Christians than to submit our sexuality to the Lordship of Jesus in the 21st century. Because we just don't believe in our culture that anyone should submit to anything, any desires, anything. That's almost wrong at some levels. You know, in the first century, when Christianity spread in like a crazy way, turned the Roman Empire upside down? Do you know there was only a couple things that were actually a very strong, unique, distinctive about them that almost people argue is what made them actually become the community that turned the world upside down? Do you guys want to take a guess at what one of them was? <clears throat> what we're talking about? They had an enormous, unique, and distinct sexual ethic that was actually recognized by non-Christians all in the first century. Literally, I was just reading something this morning because I was trying to uh, refresh on some of it, even though I'd read some of it before, and I found another new one where this quote, it's like some, I don't know, some Roman teacher or guy, some popular guy, because obviously we still remember him 2,000 years ago. That's a cool goal. Um, he came, you know, he was writing something and just kind of like, kind of almost like seeing these Christians. Who are they? They're kind of weird. They act different. And he basically goes into this whole treatise of how they share everything, meals, money, resources, but they don't share their spouses. That's what it said. And he goes, that makes them weird. Why do they do that? What's going on? They shared everything. Isn't that fascinating, by the way, that Rome was actually inverted of that? Everything's mine. I get everything. 
I can do what I want. No one can touch my resources. It's mine, 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 mine. But then when it comes to sexuality, you got orgies and chaos and everything all over the place. You do realize, by the way, like this is on historical record that we are like nothing compared to like the craziness of sexuality, the sexuality scene in Rome. Like it was insane. Google, well, I was gonna say Google it, don't Google it. <laughs> but I'm just saying this problem isn't new. This problem's not new. And over and over and over again, what we see is that one of the distinctives of a Christian is actually their sexual ethic. And I think just like Rome, we have very similar cultures in America, what we believe about empire, what an empire represents, militarism, hedonism, all these different types of things, which by the way, I might get in trouble for that, but I think, I think America looks a lot more like Rome and actually Caesar's empire, which is completely condemned in the scripture, by the way, than God's country. <laughs> Can I say that? If I say that in the South, I'm getting, yeah, shot. But um, it's true. The scripture is very clear that the power of Caesar and the empire and militarism and I'm gonna get what I want through killing you, that sounds like the value of America, doesn't it? And we're gonna take everything we want in a pleasureful way, in a hedonistic way, that sounds like America. Jesus has a very competing narrative. He says, first of all, in that first one, what's he say? Jesus says, no, 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 I'm gonna get what I want. I'm gonna usher in the kingdom of God and I'm gonna bring the peace just like Caesar said, by the way, did Caesar not, it was called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This whole campaign of I'm gonna usher in goodness and blessing and peace. And you do know, by the way, that Caesar was called Lord of Lords and you do know, by the way, he was called son of God. Now do you understand how subversive Jesus was and why he got killed? You would never get killed in the first century, by the way, ever for saying, hey, I died for your sins and you can go to this place in the sky when you die. No one would get killed in the first century for that, ever but you start saying, I am Lord, you're subvertingly saying he's not. He is not in control. It's a sham. It's false. But Jesus, instead of using the sword, using violence, does what? Actually, he says, no, no, I'm gonna usher in the peace and the, the true kingdom of God. How? By actually offering my life as a sacrifice, not taking someone else's. And by the way, which one lasts longer? Whose kingdom's still standing, Caesar or Jesus's? I think we know which one works better. We know which one works better. And then same with the taking, right? In those cultures, it's take, take, take. Jesus says, no, I'm gonna subvert that as well. It's about giving. And sex is that exact same thing. That sex becomes, in a covenantal marriage, your opportunity to give yourself in a naked, transparent way to your spouse for oneness. Hey guys, I want to take a quick break to talk about one of this week's sponsors, and that is Audible. You guys know we love Audible. We are audiobook fanatics in the Beth Key house. And if you don't know Audible, basically what they do is there's so many inspiring voices, compelling stories for you to listen to an unmatched library of audiobooks on there. It's absolutely incredible, guys. We love it. It syncs across all devices. And so they want to hook you guys up. So you can get your first audiobook for free plus two Audible originals when you try Audible for 30 days. So what you do is go to audible.com slash real life or text real life to 500 500. So again, audible.com slash real life for that awesome offer or text real life to 500 500. Really, really cool. Really, really awesome. And if you guys don't know Audible Originals, you get two of those free with this deal. Those are exclusive audio titles created by celebrated storytellers. Um, from all different diverse worlds like theater, journalism, literature, and it's really, really awesome. So again, love you guys. Get hooked up. Go check it out. Audible.com slash real life or text real life to 500-500. Here's another thing too, by the way, when I talked about sex is, uh, tells a story. <coughs> 
Never let your body say something that your life is not willing to say. Never let your body say oneness if your bank account, your life, your house, your covenant will not also say that. See, we think sex is the first thing, meaning like that's what we want to do, that's what we desire, it's the fulfillment, it's all that stuff, right? Sex is almost the last kind of thing on the, the drama of intimacy. Oneness, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and then sex becomes just this drama of that moment in the marriage. Don't let your body say something your life is not willing to say, because when you do, that is the definition of short-circuiting. It just short-circuits, which another word for that is Chaos. It's no longer in order. So sex is an opportunity to show off Jesus' lordship and to gain our full humanness. Because here's the truth, guys. Like, we are a bucket of a range of desires. Some good from the Lord, some bad, not from us or from the Lord. Some from us in our flesh and our sin, but not of the Lord. We are just a bucket of a range of desires of what we want, what we like, and what we desire. And here's one thing I do want to say too. At some level, make sure you don't go so far down the spectrum that you dampen down every single desire. Pay attention to your desires. Some of them, and you have to be able to, in a discipleship way, understand how to interpret them, but make sure they're all submitted to the lordship of Jesus. So your sexuality would be one of those. Is it submitted to the lordship of Jesus? Are your desires submitted to him? And that's like the conversation we talked about yesterday with singleness, right? Because everyone has a sexuality, even if you're not having sex. Everyone has a sexuality. Everyone has desires. Maybe you're looking, you want a relationship. You want a spouse. You want all those different things. Have you submitted that desire to the Lord? Now, notice I didn't say, did you ask him to erase it? Because that's the annoying Christian college thing we do, do we not? Right? Like, oh, I'm just so content in the Lord, right? I just, yeah, it's just me and Jesus, right? And then you're kind of like one eye open. Where's my husband? Where is he? Right? It's like, like, like you're almost trying to hide from God that you actually want a husband or a wife, you do realize that like it says it was not good for man to be alone before even the curse. Like even before, like, like I can't understand that. I feel like I'd be totally chill and fine in the garden by myself. Any introverts? <laughs> before the curse. And is he lonely? I mean, he's got Yahweh. That's crazy. That's still even before the curse. It's not good for man to be alone. So it's okay to have desires but we need to always be submitting our desires to the Lordship of Jesus. Jesus gives us our model, by the way, in the Garden of Gethsemane, does he not? Take this away from me. I don't like being single. Maybe you do, maybe you feel called to it, but I know a lot of people that say, no, I don't want this. But, what does Jesus then pray right after that? But, your will be done. That's the prayer not only for our sexuality, that's our prayer for our life, by the way. Honesty, 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 transparency, transparency to the Lord, talk to him, pour out your heart, but your will be done but your will be done. That's submission to lordship. And we can trust him because he's a good and gracious father who leads us into genuine humanness when we do. The next one, but I already covered it, so I'm actually gonna skip over it, was sex is about ultimate intimacy. So I already kind of mentioned that, but one more thing I'll say there is sex is this, this intimate act in marriage where marriage is, and here's why it only belongs in marriage in that fire pit analogy, because sex is the only thing that can contain that power and actually be enough of a promise for you to let down your guard to actually enjoy true intimacy. Tim Keller basically makes the argument in his book, Meaning of Marriage, and I think it's brilliant if you're on the road to marriage, totally read it, um, where he essentially says, every act of sex outside of marriage is nothing more than performance. 
Because at, at, at any level, whether you're, whether you're on that spectrum, at any level, you cannot escape the fact that that person can still leave whenever they want. That, that, per, that, the, that the, the relationship is still transactional, which it is. That's what dating is. But that's why you don't enter into a sexual relationship in dating. Because only the covenant of marriage can hold that. A covenant is what? A, co- the, a covenant is saying that the glue of this relationship is not your behavior, but your promise. A contract relationship is the opposite, by the way. Right? A contract relationship is the glue of this relationship is not what? The promise, but your behavior. Anyone who has a job, that's a contract relationship. What happens if you mess up bad enough? You get fired. Marriages, sadly, in a broken, cursed world, there still can be separations and divorces, but in its essence, in its principle, you don't get fired from a marriage. Why? Because the promise is the glue there. And when the promise is the glue there, then you can step into that relationship fully naked. And I don't mean that physically. I mean everything. True intimacy is where your spouse sees you. I see all that you are. I see all your frailties. I see all your sin. I see all your pain. I see all the shame you're carrying. I see everything right out in the open. You're not hiding it. And I still want you. I want to be one with you. And when two people are doing that dance, that is sex in its richness and in its depth. And then that's the outlet for our sexuality in the confines of marriage. I'll end with a couple kind of notes that I want to make sure I I talk about. One of them is, one thing I want to make sure that I say too is that it takes work to live in a Christian sexual ethic. It takes zero work to live in a cultural sexual ethic. So you are going to be swimming upstream if you submit your sexuality to the Lordship of Jesus, right? But that's for your blessing and good because you were created for the depths of what this gift was if marriage is in your future. And so one example, I think it's kind of weird, but I, I have kids, so I'm always thinking kind of lenses through them. Um, you know, we take our kids swimming all the time. We'll go to the community pool or stuff like that or go to a friend's pool. How weird would it look? It's never happened, thankfully. How weird would it look if we show up to the kiddie pool and there's like, you know, the little 18-inch pool and there's like a 40-year-old man with his floaties on just going, this is awesome, this is awesome, this is awesome. How weird, do you think that I should probably call the cops? Do you think I should do that? Yes. Uh, Why? Because he's not meant to swim there, right? Where is he meant to swim? The deep end, right? Over in the actual adult pool where you can wade and there's more room and there's more space and there's way more what? Depth. And I think that's a picture again of sexuality of a lot of us, pornography, recreational sex, sex in our dating relationships, you look about as ridiculous as the 40-year-old with the floaties in the kiddie pool. You were created for the deep end. You were created for a level of depth and richness that goes far beyond what you've ever experienced. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that? Now, here's the hard part. Can we admit that it would be semi-refreshing on a 100-degree day to still be a 40-year-old man in the 18-inch pool? Yes, that's why things like pornography and recreational sex, we don't need to deny the fact that there's still pleasure at some level there. They feel good at some level there, but it's a distortion. You're created for the deep end. You're created for the depths and richness of how God created the gift to be for your flourishing. And so understanding that and believing that then allows you to step into having a better larger desire that is Jesus that makes everything else kind of fall by the wayside. We need to replace our desires, not only point them in the right directions, but then understand that Jesus is our truest desire and treasure. And renewing yourself day by day under his lordship, trying to make that true in our discipleship is what makes other things fall by the wayside. Another way to put it is um, 
you know, if we were just randomly in a desert, you know, I don't know where, maybe Arizona or wherever you'd find that. I don't know any Arizona people. Uh, Saudi Arabia, go over there, it's kind of the same. Um, Weather-wise, <laughs> nothing else-wise. You, you, let's say you show up in a desert, okay? Now, if you're in a desert and you, whatever, you know, you're about to die and you haven't drank water for days, if a toilet bowl shows up in that desert, do you think that would be the best thing ever and you'd probably drink it and guzzle it and it'd be incredible? Yes, right? You might, like, you might be like, oh no, that's gross. No, if you're in a desert, that would be phenomenal. You would guzzle that thing. You would get a straw and drink every last drop of the toilet water and it would taste good. It would taste phenomenal probably given your context and your circumstance. But if you're back home in your house, right? And you, where do you go when you want good water? The kitchen, the sink, the Brita water filter, whatever, right? I don't know if you guys' tap water is good here or not, but I've had some trash tap water in other states. Uh, in Washington, it's amazing. So we do drink from the tap water. You would go to the kitchen in the sink. Now, when you're going to the kitchen in the sink and you pass the bathroom, do you go, oh, don't touch the toilet water. Don't drink it, don't drink it, don't drink it, don't drink it. Do you do that? No, why? Because you have a better, more superior source so that that then fades away. That is the picture of sexual formation that submitted to the lordship of Jesus, we are to have the true desire and treasure, which is Jesus, and then these other ones start to look less and less attractive. Over time, it takes a long time for us to lean into sexual and spiritual formation, but that's what it is. I think so many of us, we expect spiritual perfection from ourselves. God expects spiritual formation. They're two different things. They're two different things. We want perfection, God wants formation. He wants you to form yourself into the image of him by his grace, empowered by his spirit, pointed towards him. And doing that, over time, you then begin to look back years later and say, I am a different image now. I am now more human. I am now more in line with who God created me to be. I'll end with this, because maybe you're hearing some of this, and again, like yesterday, it's like, but I've messed up, but I feel dirty, but I feel this weight of shame. I haven't done the right things. And, and again, honestly, I mean, think about this room, the size. There's gotta be dozens, if not hundreds of abortions that have happened in this room. Has to. Sometimes it's even worse in religious institutions. Why? Because we hide and we hide and we hide and we can't just, you know, let our parents know or something because we were raised in a Christian school and I was baptized at this age and so we're gonna hide it. There's probably hundreds of pornography addictions in this room. There's probably all the weight of shame and guilt over just any sexual decisions we've made. I mean, in a room this size, that's just true on that level all across the board. But here's the reality and here's the goodness of Jesus. He is not only forming us, but he comes to us. There is nothing you have to do to get to him. All other world religions say, climb the ladder, eat this way, act this way, talk this way, do this type of repentance and penance and all these different things. Jesus says, I am coming to you. With nothing in your hands, just open to receive the gift of grace. I did it on the cross. All that shame, by the way, it can't, it can't get punished twice. It can't get put somewhere twice. When you trust in Jesus, it was on him 2,000 years ago on the cross and in the grave. It's gone. It's disappeared. One last thing I'll say is this. Have you ever thought about how powerful, by the way, Jesus is? Because I think we kind of make him a flimsy little hippie, right? We do. With like, he's, like, he's not white, by the way, too. He's Middle Eastern. That bothers me so much. Um, in the Old Testament... In the Old Testament, when something unclean comes in contact with something clean, who wins? Meaning like, do they both become unclean or do they both become clean? They both become unclean, right? All of a sudden, this guy named Jesus shows up in the first century. Something un him being clean touches something unclean. Who wins? 
Jesus. They both become clean. Here is the invitation this morning. Have you reached out and touched him? Because in an instant, he's powerful enough and you become clean. All of it, the guilt, the shame, the hurt, the pain, you touch him and power emanates out of him. You are clean instantly. That is the gospel. It's free, it's good news, and that is grace. Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. Oh, Lord, I just pray that all of us, all of us every day would submit everything, not only our sexuality, our work, our education, our relationships to your lordship, not because it's random or arbitrary, but we will find genuine humanness in that. And Lord, I pray for healing, that when we reach out under that lordship, we realize we are clean, we are new, we are white instantly, and then we get that gift every single day when we reach out to you as well until we die. So Lord, we love you. In your name we pray, amen.